Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Central Wired podcast, and thanks for listening in. Make sure to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwired.com or on Facebook and Instagram. We hope this week's message meets you right where you're at. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Snuck that went in on you quickly. Um, I thank God for you. I'm glad you're here. If you're uh, here for the first time or the first time in a long time, it's about time. Now, we're grateful for your presence. I want to greet those uh, who are with us online. We love you guys. And, you know, it, it's, it's captivating to look into the Word of God and see the times Jesus did ministry, profound, enthralling, with huge audiences of people. But today, next week, and then when I come back from study break, two more times, we're going to take a close-up look at Jesus going one-on-one uh, today a man, next week a, a, a woman, and person after person, and the profound impact he brings uh, to a life. Um, but before we get going, I have a confession to make. Okay. I have a love-hate relationship with little children. I love them. I think they're awesome. We were at... Um, Farmer's Market in Janesville listening to our son sing and play yesterday. And, you know, people walk by and give him tips and stand and listen and sing as they walk by. And, but this little girl, she's about three years old. She doesn't walk by. She stops and starts dancing. And her parents are like, come on, we go, go buy a cucumber. Um, but she wants her mom to dance with her. And mom stands there. She, keeps, she dances. All little kids, I think, dance alike. It's like this. I mean, she had some other moves that would probably hurt my back, um, but it was a joy. Kids are pure joy. But there is one character trait of little children that stirs up intense, dark jealousy in me. A little child can fall asleep anytime, anywhere, under any circumstance. And it feels like to me that the farther I get from childhood, yeah, look at that. I fall asleep like that, I'm in the chiropractor for a week. Here's another one. Okay, maybe I've fallen asleep like that before. Here's my favorite, though. You see that says Ikea? I said, do that to me, Debbie. Put me in a cart, I'll go to sleep, you shop. Um... No, I'm a, I'm a diabetic, and one of the struggles with diabetes is we have lots of sleepless nights. And so I wanted to ask you, what is it that keeps you awake at night? I mean, does your mind race? Uh, do you kick into overdrive in your heart with emotions, your feelings, the regrets from the past, shame from the past, or fear over the future, or just all the stuff you got to do tomorrow? What keeps you awake. And then, here's my second question, what do you do to go to sleep, you know, when unconsciousness does not come? You drink warm milk, you watch one of my sermons online. It's like taking two Tylenol PM. Though the danger of watching one of my sermons is that you may find yourself falling face first on your keyboard and drool into it and destroy it. And then you wake up with little letters all over your face. Not that I would know from personal experience. 
Um, I, I want to show you my holy trinity of how I fall asleep. If I have a sleepless night, I give it an hour. And if I can't fall asleep in an hour, tear off the covers, sneak out of bed, go downstairs, get my easy chair in full recline, and uh, grab the remote because I'm going to find a Jason Bourne movie. Doesn't matter which one. I've got them all memorized. I'm going to turn it on low volume and then pretend I'm Jason Bourne with my eyes closed. Then, get this, this is a heating pad. And I get it for my back and my bum. And oh, baby, you know, if if that doesn't work, I've got the mother of all relaxers. This is a massager. And I love it so much, I keep it on a shelf with candles and worship before it. Thank you, Jesus. So here's how it works. Push that button. Can you see those red balls? That's like the hands of Jesus, baby, on your neck and shoulders. And they heat up. It's like, it's a, I'll, I'll wake up with this under my neck and it stopped doing its thing. So, I'll sell this collection for $9.95. <laughs> no, I wanted, to, I wanted to get that track in your mind because I want to take you into the bedroom of a man who was suffering a sleepless night. He's tossing and turning all twisted up in his bed covers. He's bug-eyed with anxiety. His thoughts are disturbed. He cannot stop thinking about Jesus. I mean, he's been in those massive audiences, like a face in the crowd, and he's heard this phenomenal, amazing teaching of Jesus, and Jesus delivers it with this profound authority. And then he backs up the teaching with extraordinary, um, unprecedented Miracles of God. It's like God is in this Jesus, but everything Jesus says is completely contradictory to everything this man has learned. And he just fights it. He doesn't know if he should be in the huge crowd of people that hate Jesus and want him dead or in the huge crowd of people that think Jesus is God. And he just can't stop thinking about Jesus. His name is Nicodemus, and he lives in the fast lane of the rich and famous. I mean, he has, he has a pedigree. He's got credentials. His grandpa was the ambassador to the Roman emperor Pompey. And he's a member of a very elite religious sect called the Pharisees. They are the rule makers and the rule keepers. They think everybody else is a vile sinner and they're the good guys. And God likes them. He's also a political elitist. Uh, Like if you would take our Supreme Court and some of the Senate and some of the House of Representatives, you would have 70 men. It's a boys club. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and they ruled the entire nation. 70 men, political power. This guy, this Nicodemus, he's got it all, but he doesn't have Jesus, and he is so disturbed But the things Jesus says and the things Jesus does, it's it's just so counter to everything he's been taught and everything he teaches. And so finally just gives up, tears off the bed covers, sits up on the side of the bed, 
pulls on some sweatpants, slips into some sandals, puts on a hoodie so people think he's going to Walmart. And then he heads out the front door on his way to find Jesus. He knows the house where Jesus is staying. And the desperation is so intense, he goes into a jog, which is, oh man, this is unbelievable. And he's just hoping the darkness hides him because no one in the, he would want no one to see him run. Men in that day, noble men did not run. Let a kid run, send a servant, but be cool. Don't let anybody see you sweat. But this guy, Nicodemus, he's on a fast trot to get to Jesus. And as he runs, he's like, man, I am crazy. This feels so weird. I mean, people come to me. I don't go to people. It feels so awkward. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? But nothing's going to stop him. He goes through Jerusalem, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, into Bethany, Finds himself at the door of the house where he knows Jesus is staying. And I mean, he's uh, catching his breath, gasping for air. Starts to knock on the door, and then, "Mm, this is crazy. I should just turn around now and go home. But he doesn't. He knocks, and Jesus opens the door, and Nicodemus looks like both ways, steps in. Door closes behind him. And, And this is the first time. I mean, he's been a face in the crowd, the multitudes, the thousands, but now he's just one-on-one, person-to-person, heart-to-heart with Jesus. And this is what he blurts out. He says, Rabbi, no, this is huge. This is showing Jesus special honor and respect because a rabbi was a mature teacher who was qualified to bring unique insight from the Word of God. Rabbi. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are are evidence that God is with you. What you say, what you do in the presence of God, I mean, oh my gosh, you're awesome. Now, Jesus doesn't respond in kind. It's kind of surprising to me because when I tell you, you guys, I love you, you say, well, I love you too, David. I say, you're great. You say, you're great. And I say, you're awesome. You say, well, you're kind of mediocre. Um, (laughs) No, Jesus doesn't respond that way. He he doesn't say, well, thank you for the kind words, and I've heard good things about you too. Because Jesus knows that Nicodemus is here as a cynic. He is suspicious of Jesus. He is skeptical of Jesus. And Jesus wants to move him, oh, lover of Jesus. And, And so Jesus takes his finger and pokes it into the truth. Five words in English, but Jesus didn't speak English. He spoke Hebrew, and in Hebrew, it's one word declared twice. Same word. The word is amen, amen. Now, we think amen is like the period at the end of a prayer, but it is so much more. The word amen means let it be, let it be. No, Jesus wasn't a beetle. Um, Amen means, God, let it happen to me. If I come up and you ask me to pray over you, you're going through chemo, and I pray that Jesus will just take you up in his arms and hold you, and in the holding, heal you. If I say amen, that says, I'm saying, let that, what I prayed, let that happen for my friend. And if you say amen, I mean, what if Ray or I, we pray kind of a, a, a blanket blessing over you? 
and we prayed for the favor of God to fall on your marriage and the, the power of God to be in your life and the hope of God to be instilled in your heart. If you say amen to that, that means you're saying, Lord, let that happen to me specifically. I want that personal blessing for my life. But when Jesus says amen, amen, at the beginning of a sentence, it takes it into a whole new universe. What Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, listen up, dude. I'm about to speak life into you. I'm about to speak your destiny over you. I'm about to speak the dream of God for your life. Here's the deal. Experiencing your destiny, and maybe this is why God has brought you here today. Our Jesus wants to speak your destiny. He wants to speak words of life into you, into your marriage, into your parenting, into your emotions. Experiencing your destiny depends on your agreement with God. You say amen, you want the dream of God for your marriage, for your parenting, then you agree with what God has said about marriage and parenting. You want the dream of God for uh, your work or your education, then you agree with God. His dream for your career or, or your schooling unfolds as you agree with what He says about you. Or maybe it's your feelings. Or maybe it's your finances. I without a doubt believe that God has a dream for the way you feel and can feel and, and, and for your finances. And that dream unfolds as you agree with him and say, amen, amen, Jesus. I want this to happen to me. And I will line up my life in agreement with what you say. So Jesus says, amen, amen, have I got your attention? I want to speak life. I want to speak your destiny. I want to reveal God's dream. And then he says this, unless you are born again, say born again. Yeah, I would say it that way too because I struggle with these two words. Because I've heard these churchy nuts use them as if it's a badge that makes them better than other people. That is no way what Jesus meant by born again. And to tell you the truth, not in a million years would Nicodemus ever think that Jesus would suggest spiritual rebirth to him. And I want to tell you before I'm done what I believe, spiritual rebirth, what Jesus means by born again. But Jesus says, and let Nicodemus, it's not about how much money you got, not about how much education you got. Born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And on the inside, I mean, Nicodemus, his face starts to get red. Sweat starts to pop out on his brow. That, that vein at his temple begins to throb. He is so angry, so offended. Jesus, I'm at the top of my game, and how dare you suggest that I go back to square one? I'm at the top of the political party, the religious system. I'm at the top with my money, and you're telling me to start over? How dare you? That's what he thinks. It's not what he says. Here's what he says to Jesus with a smirk. What do you mean? How can an old man, that word old there means he's like my age, late 60s, 
maybe early 70s. He says, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? So guess how Jesus answers this question? He answers it the same way that he often answers our question. Do you ever have a question for Jesus? Your life doesn't make sense. Your marriage doesn't make sense. Your kids don't make sense. Wait till they're 22. Everything's going to work out okay. No, but it just feels like, you know, it just doesn't. I've got some questions for you, Lord. Jesus is so patient. He is so loving. He is so committed to revealing God's dream for our lives. Here's what Jesus says in answer to the question. Jesus says, amen, amen. Listen, Nicodemus, get what I'm about to say. Man, I'm about to reveal God's dream for your life. Amen, amen. No one can. I'm not just talking about catching a glimpse. I'm not talking about seeing from a distance. No one, no one can enter experience the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Now, I believe that Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, and if he was offended before, now it's off the charts offense. Because I believe that he was saying to Nicodemus, you must perform the ultimate act of humility and be baptized. And I mean... Nicodemus starts to go into gag reflex. Because, well, you remember in that day, John the Baptist baptized people, the disciples of Jesus baptized people, and the deal was this. Just because you're born in a Jewish home does not make you one of the people of God. You've got to have different values. You've got to have different behavior. You've got to think a different way and feel a different way about God. And so baptism was saying, I'm sorry, I'm going to change the direction of my life and go toward God. There's no way in the world Nicodemus would say, hey, I've been thinking all the wrong things, doing all the wrong things, feeling all the wrong ways about God. No, 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 no. I got it all right. I got the rules. I do all the rules. I would never, never, never submit, humiliate myself by being baptized. I believe, I'm going to share with you, there are scholars, people way smarter than me, that don't agree that being born again of the water and the Spirit references baptism. I'm not going to give you scholarship. I'm going to give you the Word of God. And I know that you hear other preachers online or on TV, but always make sure to whomever you're listening, they, they explain God's Word with God's Word. They support God's Word with God's Word. They illustrate God's Word and interpret God's Word based on God's Word. So let me take you in God's Word to the place where Jesus was baptized. Look at the text. Jesus. Say Jesus. Jesus. Okay, like you're on caffeine. Jesus. Jesus. One more time. Jesus. Yeah, that feels good, doesn't it? I'm sorry. Liam. Jesus loves you, Liam. Um, that feels good to me because I know that name saves. There's forgiveness in that name. There is hope in that name. There is joy in that name. That name delivers, rescues, and restores. That name makes me feel good. I, uh, last night I was going around greeting people, and a young woman who's here every weekend 
uh, she shook my hand, gave me a hug, and said, I invited a relative of hers uh, to church with me, and she's where to go to church. And she told her, she said, you don't go to that church. That's a feel-good church, which I think beats the heck out about being a feel-bad church. <laughs> but Jesus makes me feel good. And this is why we feel good. Jesus. Jesus was baptized by John as Jesus was coming up out of the water. Say water. water. Yeah, so John the Baptist has him under water. He's coming up out of the water, and Jesus sees heaven being torn open, and the Spirit, say Spirit. Spirit. We have water, and we have Spirit. Comes up, heaven's open, sees the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Water and Spirit. And then, when God gives birth to the church, and Peter is preaching the very first sermon, and people want to know, what should we do to be saved? Here's what Peter says. Change your life, turn to God, and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, just like he was baptized. Why? So your sins are forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit, water and spirit. And then the apostle Paul will go on to proclaim, this is what baptism, look what you're baptized into, not a church or the church, you're baptized into the life of Jesus. It's his eternal life. It's his super abundant life. It's his life in you and his life lived through you. This is what baptism into the life of Jesus means. So when you have the spiritual rebirth experience, you receive a new Jesus identity. My biological boys were born into the Clark family. Debbie Clark is their mom. David Clark is their dad. Nana and Papa are their grandparents. And they gained the identity of being Clarks. And they took on certain characteristics of our family. When we adopted Wilkie, he became a Clark. Just like you, when you experienced spiritual rebirth, if you have, you became a child of God. You came into the family of God. In fact, Scripture says God adopted you, and now you can call him Papa, Father. When we adopted Lovia, 10-year-old girl, now she's 21, but she became a Clark. She got a new identity now. This identity in Jesus is um, off the charts huge. Ray and I could take turns preaching for a whole year on the identity of Christ that's in you. Let me just explain it simply this way. Anything imperfect, all your imperfections are put on Jesus, and your new identity is this. You are perfect in Christ. That's how God sees you. Anything wrong with you, it's all put on Jesus, and you are made the righteousness of God. That's your new identity. No one and nothing can ever change that. Anything bad about you, it's all put on Jesus, and everything good about Jesus, you are made the goodness of Christ. That's your new identity, unchanging, unbreakable, unshakable, when you come into the life of Jesus through spiritual rebirth. So, the Apostle Paul then would write... This is what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Now catch this. Each of us is raised up into a light 
filled world by our Father. Now, let me tell you what I think he means. When a little boy or a little girl, baby, is born, for the first time in their nine-month existence, they go, and breathe. Now, hey, you know when Jesus said, this is how you pray, our Father who art in Heaven, it doesn't mean heaven where we're going for eternity, where we get to do what we love best with those we love most all in the presence of Jesus forever, which for me will be eating Twinkies and ding-dongs. It's not talking about the heaven where there's a moon and a sun and stars and galaxies and planets spinning in space. The word there for heaven means right here, right now, in the air we breathe. So when you experience spiritual rebirth, you breathe in the presence of God just like a baby takes its first breath. But also that baby comes out and its eyes are little slits and they put salve on their eyes. And when they open their eyes, they see for the very first time. So a person who experiences spiritual rebirth, before they experience that spiritual rebirth... Through baptism, they might read the, 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 the Bible and it feels like reading an encyclopedia or a dictionary. Boring. But then they are spiritually reborn. And all of a sudden, after their baptism, they open the Bible. It's like shades have t- been taken off their eyes. And oh my gosh, this doesn't just make sense. This, this addresses my life in a very specific way. It's why I open God's word every day and read because I want to see the light-filled world he wants to show me. But a little baby coming out of the womb for the first time hears outside the muffled confines of the womb, hears noise for the very first time. So that when you experience spiritual rebirth into the life of Jesus, voice like thunder going off on the inside of you. Let me just give you an example from this week in my life. My daughter, Lovia, wanted to move to Janesville from Madison. Mom, Dad, would you help? Could we borrow your truck? I don't have a very big truck. And I've seen her drive. Just kidding. But I I don't have a very big truck, and I could just envision that's going to be trip after trip, back and forth, back and forth, with a little... And I've seen the the amount of furniture that's been accrued over the course of one year. So I said, you know what? I'm going to... I'll rent a U-Haul truck. We'll get it all in one load, make one trip, and I'll, I'll pay for it. So... Thursday night of this week, I'm on the phone with the only U-Haul place that's still open. Um, Want to rent a truck? Sorry, we don't have any in Janesville. Okay, how about Madison? Because you know, I got to go up there. Nope, no U-Haul trucks available in. I said, you're kidding me. Not in Madison, not in Janesville? No. Why? Because it's the last weekend of the month, dummy, and everybody moves the last weekend of the month. They never taught me this in school. So like I throw in the towel discouraged, thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be terrible, million trips back and forth. First thing the next morning, I'm going to get on the phone and call every place that's open. I'm going to find a truck. And so I'm driving to work a little after eight, and I drive on Cranston by the U-Haul place. And I get by and I'm like, you know, maybe I should just go in there. And so I hang a right down a side street through an alley 
back up another side street, left on Cranston, right into the parking lot of the U-Haul place. I go inside, three employees, hey, good morning. I say, good morning. How can we help you? I'd like to rent a truck. They all start laughing. There's a bunch of trucks out in the parking lot. They're just laughing at me. And I said, I'd like to rent a truck. We don't have any trucks. Nobody has any trucks. There's not a truck on the last weekend of the month. Ignorant. But then the lady said, I know you. You baptized me 35 years ago. I'm going to help you out. I've got a truck sitting out there that will leave in the morning. And I said, thank you very much. This is, this is awesome. And, and, and But I also felt like after 35 years, it was about time for payback. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. But I also got to re-engage in that relationship with her. But, but you see what God did? And she charged me half of what the people in Janesville and Madison said that they would charge. And so I believe that was God speaking to me, this little nudge, this little awareness, do this, and look what God did. But when you are experiencing spiritual rebirth, a baby's existence, that baby feels human touch. They're swaddled up in security and when you are reborn spiritually, you are touched by God, and you are set free to touch God. Um, you see, when we are born again of the Spirit, of water and the Spirit, we have not just Jesus' identities, but Jesus' experiences. And so, twice Jesus has said to Nicodemus, amen, amen, listen up, dude, this is your destiny. And then he explains the spiritual rebirth thing with these words, God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world and you, Nicodemus, that he gave me his one and only son so that whoever believes and surrenders to me will not perish but have eternal life. And with those words, the Spotlight goes out on the stage, complete darkness, the curtain closes, and that scene is over. So maybe you ask, well, did, did, did Nicodemus move across this spectrum from doubt and skepticism and cynicism to, to love and surrender and belief? Well, if we look one year later, Jesus is back in Jerusalem teaching uh, like nobody's business and working miracles out of this world, and people, everybody's just going, oh my gosh, this Jesus is God. And it just infuriated the Pharisees, that real elite religious sect, they go, somebody's going to shut this guy up. We got to stop this. And so they sent a squadron of soldiers to arrest Jesus, get him in custody, get him in chains, get him into our presence. And so the soldiers go, and then they come back sometime later empty-handed know Jesus. And they're like, what's going on? We sent you to get Jesus. There's a bunch of you. There's one of him. Why didn't you bring us Jesus? And these guys said, no one has spoken like that man speaks. His words have life. His words have power. And the religious guys are like, you bumpkins, you idiots. He's like the devil in his flesh. And what he says puts a curse on you. He's just deceived you. And then stepping into that moment, 
something has shifted in Nicodemus where he went to Jesus privately under the cover of darkness before now he goes public with his defense of Jesus. Here's what Scripture says. Right then, Nicodemus spoke up. Remember Nicodemus? He was the Jewish leader who came secretly to interview Jesus. Nicodemus says, is it legal? You guys out of your minds? You're talking about illegal stuff. Is it legal to condemn a man before he's even tried? Oh, my gosh. They lit into him. They said, obviously, you know nothing about the Bible. In fact, if you don't back off, if you don't shut this up, we're done with you. You're out. We'll take everything you got. So, so, so do you think he backed off? Curtains close on that scene. Lights come back up again. And one year later, the curtain opens and the spotlight is on a bloody, brutalized body on a cross. Jesus is dead. His limp, lifeless body just dangles by those nails between heaven and earth. It's over. Now, normally, um, customarily, Roman soldiers would take the victim down and throw the victim's body in a ditch or a gully, and wild animals would devour it, or vultures come and And so here's what happens. After the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple of Jesus, because he he, he feared um, the religious leaders, he boldly, now there's another bold guy right beside him, you'll find out boldly asked Pilate, the governor, for permission to take Jesus' body down. And Pilate told him, hey, go ahead. And Joseph came and took the body. Nicodemus, who the, the guy who had first come to Jesus at night, he came too. And with a hundred pounds of embalming ointment, I think that was in my daughter's apartment, it was like a hundred pounds of Mary Kay. With a hundred pounds of embalming ointment made of myrrh and aloes. And together, these two men wrapped Jesus' body in a long linen cloth saturated with the spices, as was the Jewish burial custom. The tomb was close by, and they laid him there. Now, what would be so remarkable if the first time people read this account and they saw that, they'd be like, no way, because normally a servant would do this, because anybody that touched a victim of crucifixion would be cursed by God. And so send a servant, or women would be allowed to do this work. But Nicodemus and Joseph, they don't give a rip about who sees or who knows. They're not going to let anybody use their hands for what their hands can tenderly and lovingly do to give Jesus an honored, dignified, and respectful burial. And they lay his body in a tomb. Now, three days later, when Jesus is raised from the dead, it's a game changer. And I believe that Nicodemus was in one of the appearances that Jesus made after his resurrection. 
One time there's like 500 men. I bet he was at least one of those guys. But for sure, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell and Jesus gave birth to the church, I'm going to believe that Nicodemus was baptized with 3,000 other men and who knows how many women and children. I believe that he was born again of water and the Spirit. It's one of the reasons that... um, In September, we're bringing a modern-day Nicodemus right here to Central. His name is Daryl Strawberry. And like Nicodemus, he uh, has been rich and famous, and he gained his fame and he earned his wealth by being one of the most electrifying uh, baseball players in in the major leagues. I mean, his first year, his rookie season, he was voted player of the year, was on the all-star team eight consecutive seasons, helped his team win four World Series champion, win four World Series championships. The sad thing was his religion was sex, drugs, and alcohol. Kicked out of sport twice and the second time over Rover. He had visited a prostitute, was in possession of cocaine, and the league's done with him. He went into rehab. Within five years of being kicked out of baseball, he lost everything, his marriage, all his money, goes into rehab, meets a young woman named Tracy. For the last 13 years, she's been his wife. But at that time, um, she was just a young woman who prayed for him. She says she would get down on her face every day and pray that Daryl Strawberry would experience spiritual rebirth and surrender his life to Jesus. And her prayers were answered. And I believe that you have a Nicodemus in your life. Who's your one? A neighbor, a friend, a family member, a co-worker, a classmate who is cynical about faith, who is suspicious of Jesus being God, who is unbelieving and doubting. I would like for you to begin to pray for your one. Pray for the opportunity, not just to invite for them to hear Daryl Strawberry tell his story in September, but pray for the opportunity for you to personally tell your own faith story. Who's your one? Would you stand with me, please? Thanks so much for joining us. Just a reminder to stay connected with us throughout the week at centralwire.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for being with us and have a great week.